0: Welcome to Season 2 of Camel Call. I'm Chris Hamire and along with Evan Budrovich, each week we bring you the stories of the coaches, student-athletes, alums, and others that make Campbell Athletics so great. A new episode airs every Tuesday, so subscribe and never miss a show. Just search Camel Call Podcast on iTunes to find us and catch up on Season 1 last season i interviewed every head coach at campbell in a segment i called coffee with coaches and it was truly an amazing experience spending quality time with quality people so i thought it was only fitting to start season two with the man responsible for bringing so many of them here director of athletics bob roller in just seven years bob has elevated campbell athletics to new heights from facilities to equipment technology to staff He has worked tirelessly to give our head coaches and their programs the support and environment they need to succeed, and it's working. Campbell is winning both on the court and in the classroom. It's a great time to be a camel, and the reason why is a sports-loving son of a florist from Virginia whose unique career path set the foundation for his success. I know you like coffee as much as I do. So tell me how you take it and how many you take each day.
1: It's typically maybe just one in the morning, believe it or not. It's cream and sugar. Unfortunately, I've never broken that habit of cream and sugar. I like pretty bland coffee. I'm not very extravagant. I just get the the blonde as they call it or the or the blend and uh, be hard to start a day without it, but I'm not one of those that has it throughout the day.
0: Take me all the way back to when you grew up, what was that like, and, and how did you become a sports fan?
1: Well, I was the youngest of four children uh, and quite a bit younger than the rest of my siblings. So I had older parents who worked pretty much seven days a week in a florist business. And so I grew up in an apartment above a florist shop in southwestern Virginia, Parisburg, Virginia. And so um, I was kind of like an only child with three older siblings, and um, my sister, M.M., did quite a bit of raising me, along with my mom and dad, who, again, like I said, really, truly worked seven days a week in the only flower shop in about a three-county area. So sports was an outlet for me. Radio was big, of course. I'm that old that I listened to Major League Baseball games on the radio and then would go outside. and throw the ball against the house and recreate the game that just happened. So it was definitely a big part. I would remember watching, there was one baseball game a week on Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock with Kurt Gowdy and Joe Garagiola, and you'd wait to see what that game was going to be. And I happened to be a Cincinnati Reds fan, and at that time in the 60s and 70s, they were really good, so they were on a lot. And that was before markets dictated where a game would be. So, so you waited for 2 o'clock on Saturday to watch that and hoped it didn't rain.
0: So tell me what the town of Parisburg, Virginia was like.
1: Well, it's a small town. The Appalachian Trail runs through it. So throughout my life, uh, my father would pick up a lot of hikers who were about midway through their georgia to maine trek and and he would help them out and get them some clean clothes and things like that because they would be about midway through the trail it's in southwestern virginia in giles county and probably 2,000 people and um, a, a very small town that's 30 minutes from blacksburg virginia and another 30 minutes the other way you'd be in princeton west virginia so it was just a very small country town uh, with about the only person that anybody knows now that came out of that town is Marty Smith, who has made it so big on ESPN the past few years. He uh, was a few, quite a bit younger than me, and I didn't know him growing up, but he's he's a Giles County boy.
0: Being in the floral business, as you say, especially if it's the only one around, Boy, a a seven-day-a-week business. What other insights do you have into something like that? It seems fascinating.
1: Well, my dad would just never turn down business, and I would remember very clearly that if someone passed away on December 23rd, there would be a Christmas Day funeral, and the Christmas Day funeral would need flowers. And so he and some of the loyal staff members that worked for him would make sure that the flowers were made the baskets and the sprays were made and taken to the funeral home. So then we had a lot of greenhouses and in the springtime the planting season was big in terms of everyone coming to buy plants for their for their gardens as well. So it was just a he was a horticulture major who went to Virginia Tech in 1940 uh at wartime and obviously when he came out of the service he immediately was sent into World War II where he spent over four and a half years. He was a tank commander in World War II and highly decorated. I have in my office his medals. He won three silver stars and two purple hearts. And um, it's it's pretty amazing for anyone that would Google a a silver star, how hard they are to be awarded. And he was uh, awarded three of them during his time as a tank commander. He was in the second armored division, which was part of Patton's march through Europe.
0: Like most veterans from that generation, did he talk much about it?
1: Not much. We finally brought it out of him a little bit near the end of his life. Both of my parents are deceased. Uh, and he he would finally talk about it and met up with some of his buddies at a second armored division convention late in life when they were all probably in their early 70s. And uh, but, but very little. He, one night he told the story where he was in a tank and on the other side of a hedgerow was a Russian tank and they came upon each other, and they were 10 yards apart, and they spent the night just facing each other, and the next morning, both of them backed away and didn't fire on each other.
0: What sports did you play growing up?
1: Well, I played them all poorly, uh, and was, uh, loved playing them all, but competitively, after most of my time, it was baseball and tennis. I, I actually could play a little bit of tennis Growing up, again, it was in a small town where no one was very good, so I was able to play on the team as well, but I loved them all, playing them all growing up.
0: And then post high school, you ended up, as you say, just down the road to the University of Virginia Tech?
1: Sure. I went there for four years, and I worked all four years there in the sports information department. Uh, I happened to be part of a really progressive sports information unit that, this was 1979, that really let the students do a lot of the work. And so by the time I was through there, I was the SID for women's basketball and for softball and and field hockey. And um, that was when media guides were just starting to be done. Now media guides are dead again. But back then they were just starting to be popular and became a big recruiting tool. So I really learned a lot about graphics artists. Journalism was my major. And um, I worked 40 hours a week all through college. Uh, for the Virginia Tech Sports Information Office doing statistics for all the major sports and doing media work for the Olympic sports.
0: What did you love about that kind of work?
1: I it Just the grittiness and being hands-on and I, I just found that game day, I loved game day and, and just being there for that and I, I, I knew in some way, shape, or form that almost all my life I was going to work in sports. I think my mom had something I wrote in third or fifth grade that that I was going to be a sports director. I didn't know what that meant, but that's what I was going to be. And so um, sports information was the path that I took in college. And obviously that was where I, upon graduation, that's where I started.
0: Well, let's start there post-graduation. Give me your career path because it is unique and varied.
1: Well, I graduated on a Saturday in 1983, mid-June, and Monday morning that same week started at East Carolina in Greenville, North Carolina as assistant sports information director and happened to be there for a great 6 months run of their football team that some may remember that year went eight and three had about 13 NFL players on the squad and the three losses were to Florida, Florida State, and Miami. Wow. And uh, Florida State won by one, Florida won by three, and Miami won by five. So they lost those three games by five points, were eight and three, and didn't get a bowl bid. Nowadays, you know, six and six gets a bowl bid, but they did not. North Carolina back then took the Peach Bowl bid away from ECU. That that year and and that was a little bit of a story back then and so quickly after that season i happened to be interviewed for the sid job at unc wilmington so i was only at east carolina for about six months and i got the unc wilmington sid job and believe it or not i was 21 years old i just graduated college (laughs) and, and so i went bill brooks was the athletic director at wilmington longtime legendary baseball coach and he took me under his wing I was way too young for that job but uh, I it was the Virginia Tech experience really made it work for me because I was able to just do what I learned there and and help UNCW sports publicity they did not have football so there was not that uh, fall pressure and uh, so I just was able to to get it done for about three years in Wilmington uh, as their sports information director where my son Brad was born in Wilmington in 1985. And then the next year, East Carolina called me back to be their SID. And so that was, I wanted to get into division one football. And that was my my reason for going back to East Carolina. So uh, I worked there for the next two years as their sports information director and then my career path started taking a turn in 1988 when I got a call to come to Miami, Florida, to work for the Orange Bowl Committee, which was definitely a big move for a guy from Southwest Virginia that had just worked there and at East Carolina. All of a sudden, I'm in Miami, Florida, married with a young child that's about two years old. And we're moving down to to sunny Miami, right in the heyday of all the Miami uh, riots, frankly, in the news. Uh, So 1988 was a change where I became their director of communications.
0: Wow. What was it like living in Miami?
1: We loved it. Uh, Like I said, had a young son, probably didn't know any better about what we were doing, and and having this Miami Vice-type city to move to and work. It was really neat. I, the Orange Bowl Committee was a great experience. It was a lot different from what I had done as a sports information director. It was run by volunteers, very influential men in the city of Miami that that wore the orange blazers and went to games. And, and back then, bowl scouting was, was still something that was political. And I would go with them on trips. Here I am, 25, 26 years old. And and these guys are CEOs of their company. And we're in, you know, Norman, Oklahoma, seeing Oklahoma-Nebraska game, or we're in Boulder, Colorado. Colorado was getting good at that time. So they took me under their wing and I went with these guys and and they watched them wear their orange blazers and work the sideline and try to get Notre Dame or try to get Miami to the Orange Bowl. And my job was more on the publicity PR side, but it was great. You would go to New York City and and, have the nbc announcement with don Cricky and and those that bob trumpy and those folks as well so it was again i was just kind of felt like chauncey gardner in that book being there sometime of what what i'm doing here but it was it was great experience for somebody in their late 20s
0: because at that time people that don't remember that era of the football bowls the orange bowl was sort of it it was that cotton rose bowl but usually you had one of the teams in the hunt for the national championship in that game. That was one of the premier bowls in the country.
1: Well, you're right. It was the Big Eight conference back then, and it was t- Oklahoma or Nebraska. One of those two was coming each year pretty much. And so, um, and then you would find the at-large opponent, which would be Notre Dame or Miami or Penn State. And, yeah, you were picking – you were selecting. It was the, – they wanted you to come because, of course, all the guys on the team wanted to go to Miami Beach – like Christmas Day, they fly in Christmas Day. The parade was huge back then. The halftime show was amazing in terms of all of the money and expense that was put into doing the Orange Bowl halftime show. Those have really died now, and corporations and sponsors have taken over, and you barely see that anymore. But that was a year-round event. There were three or four people hired by the Orange Bowl committee to do the halftime show and the staging.
0: Where does your career go from... Miami and the Orange Bowl.
1: It moved to Louisville, Kentucky in 1991. I uh, basically uh, took a job with uh, a sports marketing company up there that ended up being bought out by Host Communications. So I I went to the profit side for about seven years with a company that did corporate sponsorships and eventually did the final four uh, corporate partnerships that were with Doubletree and National Car Rental and things of that nature. We started a program that gave away the national championship trophies for all the sports. And for those of those, remember, there's that Waterford Crystal football and a Waterford Crystal basketball that was given to the national champion. Now they've pretty much phased that out a little bit and it's mostly the NCAA trophy is there. But my boss at that time named Roy Hamlin was just an incredible marketer and uh, learned to end run the NCAA, frankly, for a few years. And and our trophy presentation became the thing for people wanting to hold up that $35,000 Waterford Crystal football. The NCAA just gave them a wooden plaque. And so... um, he was a he was brilliant in that area and we were able to uh go to the top games i i was in charge of flying around the country to the best game of the year which would now be basically where sports center goes every saturday and we would try our best to get the trophy on tv there was a sponsor sears was the sponsor for a while um and so I had to work a lot with Sears, and you know they wanted to bang for their buck, so they wanted to make sure that, that we got it on. So there was pressure. It wasn't just, hey, I'm getting to go see Notre Dame play Florida State. I had to try to talk to the sideline reporter and see if I could get in a sideline report. Penn State threw me out one time because they were such old school, they didn't want any commercialization. And um, one time, Ralphie the Buffalo almost crashed into me and the the football uh, in Boulder, Colorado one day. So just a lot of neat stories there. But there was some pressure because on Monday morning, Sears wanted to know if they got one of the sideline clips.
0: What made you want to go to similar but different sports information to the marketing side? And then what did you like about it?
1: Well, I... um, I I knew that I probably did not want to do sports information for my entire life, and so I knew there was going to need to be that move. I didn't exactly have a great master plan as to what was going to happen, but I just knew... When I was at the Orange Bowl, Federal Express came on as the corporate sponsor. And so that was the first time that corporate sponsorship started creeping into athletics. And then the next thing you know, it was the Mobile Cotton Bowl and the U.S. and g Sugar Bowl and, and corporate sponsorship started taking over. And so it was the early 90s and I knew that was something that I needed to have on my resume. So we. Uh, That that, that move to Louisville was for that, and then it eventually became bought out by Host Communications. My boss did such a good job. He he made them so mad they bought him.
0: After that, tell me where your career goes. Um,
1: That was when, in 1997, uh, Samford University in Birmingham reached out to me and was looking for someone to do their fundraising. So again, it was a new a new element for me. I had been doing corporate business sales, but I'd not really done fundraising quite as much. And um, a man who I had met in Miami through our church uh, was the vice president at Sanford, And he thought that maybe I would be good to try to help them uh, raise more money and raise their profile for Sanford Athletics. And so we, we did that, moved to Birmingham. And I did that job for two years, and the athletic director, who was nearing retirement age, did step down. And uh, after an interview process, they named me as the athletic director. So without ever really planning and having some massive goal to be an athletic director, in 1999, I was named the AD at Samford University. And now this year will be my 20th year as an athletic director at, at either Samford or Campbell.
0: What did you do at Samford, a place with a long Southern Conference history? And boy, you were prepared for it, but that had to be quite a change.
1: Well, and it's funny with you say a long Southern Conference history. We weren't in the Southern Conference when I got there, and that was sort of one of the charges they had. Samford was in the TAC, huh. the Trans America yeah. Athletic Conference. Samford was playing Campbell. Okay. Samford was playing Troy University, Central Florida, Florida Atlantic. It was a very spaced out conference back in 1999. And the president at that time, Tom Quartz, and the trustee chairman said, you know, what's it going to take? We need to be in a conference like the Southern Conference. Well, the the problem was in 1999, Samford was not ready for that. They did not have the facilities. They didn't have the budgets. Uh, Competitively, Furman was a powerhouse back then, and Appalachian State and Georgia Southern. So, we had to spend some time raising the profile of Samford. We had to raise some money and build some new stadiums, hire some different coaches, try to get budgets better, and and then before you knew it, after a move to the Ohio Valley Conference for a few years, which also was strange for Samford, the next we did get into the Southern Conference, uh, and ironically, it was ten years ago because they're doing a piece in the Samford magazine this fall about the ten-year run wow. of athletics in the Southern Conference so it's uh, now it's 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 neat that you say in your question Sanford is a Southern Conference power but but when I got there yeah. they were seven years out and hadn't been there yet so it was um uh, kind of a situation where I, I'm very proud of how strong that program is today and and where we were back in 1999.
0: What brought you from there to Campbell?
1: Well uh, a dear lady named Carolyn. So uh, long story that this group doesn't need to hear, but Carolyn and I at that time were engaged, but she was living in Richmond, Virginia. Carolyn is my wife, of course, and she was living in Richmond, and what is now my youngest stepdaughter was in sixth grade, and as part of an agreement with her mom and dad, uh, Kara was to stay in Richmond. So I had to make the decision. They couldn't move to Birmingham. So if the decision was pretty easy. I was going to come toward Richmond. So Sanford was wonderful and understood the situation. I resigned, came to Richmond and not in 2010 and began looking for work and did some odd jobs in Richmond and did some consulting work. And then out of the blue, uh, in the spring of 11, the job at Campbell came open, and um, I applied for it. And we realized still that she couldn't move to Bowie's Creek any more than she could have moved to Birmingham. But long story short, I got the job, and for the next five years, she was a commuter and quite the unbelievable support system to do that. One week she'd work in Richmond with her daughter, and the next week she'd drive down here and be a Campbell AD's wife and a great supporter of all Campbell sports. So that's why I left Birmingham and moved here, and um, it's been just a tremendous blessing. You can see now why it needed to happen. If I had still been at Samford and I'd be in my 20th year at Samford, they'd be tired of me by now, and so it's always good to take a break.
0: Your story of what you did at Samford, very similar in my eyes, as I started in 2011 as well, of what you've done here. They were going to the Big South Conference, so you didn't have to get them into a new conference, but it was a Division I program, not quite Division One facilities, salaries, support. Tell me a little bit about what you built
1: here. Well, it, it is ironic, I guess, as I look back now, my my charge at these last two decades has been to try to take a, a very strong private Christian university that take their athletic department to a little higher profile. Both, when I got to Samford, it was kind of a commuter school. It was kind of a, the kids didn't wear Samford clothes. They wore Alabama and Auburn clothes and they forever in that state, that's gonna happen. When I got here, somewhat of a suitcase community system as it turned to athletics. A lot of the kids would have ACC shirts on, things of that nature, and facilities were needed and budgets were needed. So obviously what, what I guess I'm supposed to do is to turn things around a little bit, be a part of a turnaround. And so in doing so at, at Campbell, uh, you know, we walked in here, and at the press conference, everybody that's Campbell fans would know that there was the the, the – the little football stadium with the with the little press box that's hard to describe until unless anybody has seen it. Gore Arena, the Pope Convocation Center, had been built by people before me, and boy, that was phenomenal and transformational for the university. But baseball was kind of a t-ball stadium, and softball, frankly, was a t-ball stadium, and so we just really had to start taking little bites of the elephant again, and. Football had to be first. That was a charge from Dr. Wallace without question. So we got working on that, and two years later, uh, thankfully, we're, with a lot of help from the community and from alums, built that beautiful Barker Lane Stadium and the Carly Seas Press Box and the Warren Athletic Fieldhouse was named, and the Burt family, and Jim and Daphne Perry, Evans family, Jerry Milton, and just so many others. And and now it's so ironic and, and wonderful to see in the Big South Conference most of the schools saying things like we've got to we got to try to catch up to Campbell. we got to try to get facilities better and budgets better. And and so it's it's a source of pride there for an awful lot of people who who did a lot of work to, to make that happen. And we're not there by any means. And competitively, we we want to do better still and win. And so that's that's kind of the goal as we sit here today
0: you did hit a benchmark this past year finishing second overall very close to first in the uh, sasser cup which is the all sports standings in the conference but the men did take the all sports award which i know was a big uh part of pride for this program oh
1: it really was i mean we stressed that about three or four years ago really started stressing that hard with all of our coaches it's it's you know coaches live in silos and the teams live in silos and They've done a great job here of supporting one another. For me, as a director of all the sports, it's sort of the one way that I can be measured to see how we're doing. And for our, uh, our goal is to win the Sasser Cup, which is the all sports cup for the Big South Conference. Liberty has owned that for years and years. And now Liberty has left our conference and we wanted to beat Liberty before they left. Uh, because they are such a strong model and have done such a great job athletically with their budgets. And it was great that our men's programs did enjoy that win this past spring. And the all-sports trophy was fractional points away from happening, but it didn't happen, so we came in second. And so that is our goal as we go into this coming season, is to win the Sasser Cup, hopefully win the Men's and Women's Cup too. High Point, Radford, Gardner-Webb, Winthrop, all those schools want to win it too, and they're working hard toward it. So we have to, and Hampton coming in is a is a new school that uh, a lot of people in our market don't know about. But Hampton's strong. Hampton is very strong in many sports and will be uh, a worthy competitor for us.
0: What do you like most about being an athletic director?
1: Well, I really enjoy the kids and the game day. It sounds like the trite answer, but it's the truth. Uh, game day seeing the student athletes really seeing them on a bus seeing them in street clothes uh getting to know them uh, aside from the fact that they're a number on a team and so I and as Dr. Creed often says the odd thing about the business that we're in is we get older and the kids are always 18 to 22 usually if you're a lawyer you get older with your clients if you're a doctor you get older with your People, But here, they're always 18 to 22, and, and we get older. So I, I really enjoy that.
0: Thank you so much for the time.
1: Thank you, Chris.